From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. The Supreme Court will soon hear arguments in a case that will decide whether nearly half of Oklahoma is legally an Indian reservation. The court's decision could have massive implications for tribal sovereignty. Our guest this week is Rebecca Nagel, an activist, writer, artist, and citizen of the Cherokee Nation, whose narrative podcast, This Land, explains the process by which Native people in Oklahoma lost their land and the court case that could help restore it. Sovereignty is at the core of many Native issues today. The epidemic of missing and murdered Indigenous women, efforts to protect the environment from oil pipelines, and the preservation of Native languages and cultures. We talked about all this and what it means to be a Native American today. This live discussion took place at the Brooklyn Public Library's Night of Philosophy and Ideas. I hope you enjoy this thought-provoking conversation. This is a great honor and a great pleasure uh, to welcome Rebecca Nagel to Brooklyn. You may know Rebecca from a variety of different places, but she most recently put together a podcast called This Land. And the podcast This Land talks about a particular court case. There is the tie-in with the ACLU. So a lot has happened in the case, but let's start with the original case. (laughs) Yeah, so much has happened. What was the basic question that was before the court? What was going on in the original case? Yeah, so this court case about treaty rights in Oklahoma started with a small-town murder in the late 90s. So a Creek citizen named Patrick Murphy murdered another Creek citizen, George Jacobs, and he was sentenced to death by the state of Oklahoma. And as you guys know at the ACLU, death penalty appeals cases are really complicated. They go on for a long time. And so he appealed his death sentence on a bunch of different grounds. But one of the things that he said is that this crime happened within the treaty boundaries of my tribe, Muscogee Creek Nation, and therefore Oklahoma doesn't have jurisdiction to prosecute me, let alone even sentence me to death. Our tribes went through this process called allotment. And the state of Oklahoma says, well, since allotment happened and since Oklahoma became a state, the reservations were abolished. But what the law says is that only Congress can abolish a reservation. And the way that Congress functions is usually doing things in writing and passing laws. And there's no law that expressly abolished the reservations. And so that's what the Tenth Circuit said. And it was appealed to the Supreme Court. And so basically, the case boils down to whether or not Muscogee Creek Nation still has a reservation. The case could apply to an area of about 43% of the land in the state of Oklahoma. Wow. So we have this one murder case, which, by the magic of the courts, ends up being a question about whether large portions of Oklahoma are still Indian land. Yeah. Right. So... One of the things that you have to do in order to explain this story is not just talk about the case itself and what seems like a very big question, but you do a lot of work to inform the listener (laughs) about how we got here. Yeah. It's a long story about how this even became a question, right? Mm -hmm. And you talked about allotment and all the other sort of processes and steps along the way. And I wonder how you approached this sort of dual role of talking about this particular case but also trying to tell a whole narrative of a people and a land at the same time. 
as a native journalist, I think like there's always this struggle of meeting people where they're at. Cause I think that a lot of times people's understanding of tribes, like even when you say reservation, like what does the average person think of when you say reservation? What do Supreme Court justices? I mean, when you look at the oral arguments, what do they think of when you say the word reservation? And it's usually baked in stereotypes. And so a lot of the work of the podcast was really breaking down like what is legally a reservation? What does it mean for land to be Indian country? What does that look like across the United States? You know, it's not always the like ABC special about poverty and breaking those stereotypes down and also helping people understand like that our governments are contemporary, that we're modern, you know, that we have our own court systems, that we have our own elections, that we have our own citizens. And so I really try to do that with people's stories. And so using my own personal story of my family and what happened to my ancestors that brought us to Oklahoma and also the stories of other Cherokee and Creek people that were in the podcast, because I think that that is sort of like helps you get across that barrier (laughs) Mm. of understanding is really grounding it in people's stories. And so I think that a lot of time when people think about what happened to tribes or the loss of Native Americans, people think about real estate and put it in those terms. But I think that's really just what white people gained. And for tribes, like what we lost by losing our land base is so much more than that. We lost language, we lost lifeways, we lost family connections and kinship. And so I think in talking about this really concrete Supreme Court case and telling all those other stories, I wanted to take listeners through what the significance really is from a native perspective. Well, as you mentioned, most folks have a very simplistic narrative when it comes to the story of how these United States became modern-day United States and no longer inhabited by the people who were there before there was the United States. But you're really trying to complicate that narrative. And I, I think I'm, you know, at least average informed on these issues, but I was constantly shocked. I have to say they're Related to allotment. Yeah. So after we had been relocated and put onto reservations and had our diminished treaty territories, then the government came in and said, all you Indians who are owning your land communally, um, the reason that you're poor is because you own land communally. And so the idea was to divide up the land and assign a parcel to each individual tribal citizen and then open up the rest to basically white settlers. Well, there's a particular story that you tell in the podcast about a woman named Lydia Kingfisher. So I wonder if we can just play that clip and it's directly speaking to exactly what you were just talking about in terms of allotment and then the dispossession after the reservation is divided up, the most nefarious ways that people were dispossessed of their land. So can we play that clip? You know, one of the the saddest situations that I've ever seen in the Cherokee Nation was the, the loss of land by Lydia Kingfisher. Lydia Kingfisher owned a clothes washing business in the town of Tahlequah. She had two things that made her vulnerable. She was a full blood and she spoke Cherokee. Either could get her saddled with a guardian. One day, a grafter approached her and said he wanted to protect her from other white people who might steal her land. But Lydia declined his so-called help. And he became so angry that he poured a a vat of boiling water into her lap and basically almost burned her to death. And she became disabled afterwards. 
Well, then he sued her in, in uh, district court, and the district court judge made him her guardian. And then he sold her land, and the judge purchased her land. The judge made her attacker her guardian so that he ultimately could take her land out from under her. I mean, it's a heart-wrenching story. How typical is this story? Is this, is this the kind of thing that was happening all over Oklahoma? Yeah, um, like another thing that happened a lot was that guardians would be assigned to orphans, so people would kill kids' parents so that they could become their guardians. I mean, it's these shocking historical details yeah. and, and horrific stories, but it's creating the reality that we have on the ground today where you can actually yeah. ask questions, where you can't really tell where is Indian land and where it isn't. Yeah. Well, I want to talk more about all of the implications of this yeah. sort of hodgepodge of laws. But the podcast ends in a kind of surprising place, right? There's a sort of surprise twist with the case. Can you tell us where the yeah. case stands now? So this court case that I talked about that originated with the murder and the death penalty against Mr. Patrick Murphy, it was supposed to be decided during the last term and the Supreme Court postponed their decision, which isn't unheard of, but is extremely rare. And so they did not make a decision and they scheduled the case for re-argument. And then in December, what happened is the Supreme Court granted cert for a completely different case originating from Oklahoma with a different crime and a different defendant, but a defendant making the same argument that, you know, Oklahoma can't prosecute him because his crime happened on a reservation. And so they'll be arguing that and hopefully deciding it this term. So I've I've followed other Supreme Court cases and I've never seen one like this that's had so many unpredictable twists and turns. So we'll see what finally happens. I want to leave the court case there, but talk about some of the other ways that this jurisdictional issue can show itself. One of the other sort of movements at the federal level has been around the authorization of the Violence Against Women, VAWA. One of the key concerns with the authorization of VAWA, seemingly a totally unrelated topic, is actually this jurisdictional issue. Yeah, so for most of our history, our land and our sovereignty and our jurisdiction has been taken away from us. And what's very little of what's been taken away has been restored. And so in the late 70s, the Supreme Court decided this court case. So it was uh, two drunk white guys punched some tribal police. They got arrested because you don't punch police officers. And then they went all the way to the Supreme Court saying, this tribe shouldn't have jurisdiction over me because I'm not Indian. And the Supreme Court agreed. And so since then, if you want to go onto a reservation and commit murder, uh, rob, sell drugs, kidnap people, you are free to do all those things. And the tribe is prohibited from prosecuting you. And so while violent crime has fallen in recent decades in the rest of the United States and Indian country, it has skyrocketed because of there's this jurisdictional loophole. So two entities have jurisdiction on tribal land. Tribes only have jurisdiction over natives. And then the federal government, which has jurisdiction over non-natives and states don't have jurisdiction over crimes committed. It's extremely complicated. There are exceptions to that. <laughs> it's basically a 
complete mess and um, tribal jurisdiction just needs to be restored. But in the most recent authorization of VAWA in 2013, they were like, okay, we're going to try this. Congress was willing to take, you know, a little step and uh, they restored tribal jurisdiction over crimes of domestic violence and dating violence. And so in the current reauthorization of VAWA that has sat in the Senate and gone nowhere since it passed the House, it also restores tribal jurisdiction over sexual assault and rape and sex trafficking and crimes like that. And so it's still a partial fix. It's not a full restoration, but it's a really important step in that direction. Well, it's an important step in addressing what is an enormous problem, as you just said. It's yeah. often referred to as missing and murdered indigenous women, but it's a an epidemic. It's a crisis that thankfully is getting a bit more attention in yeah. mainstream press recently. But it strikes me that a lot of it sort of comes back to this question about who has the Ex authority to prosecute the crimes. And I wonder, is there anything else that we're missing from this narrative that we need to be considering also? I think tribal jurisdiction is the main ingredient of what needs to shift. I mean, I think there's also just a lack of response from law enforcement. And so the Urban Indian Health Institute did a really good um, study where they actually looked at urban Indians and like what is happening to urban Native women and the violence against our Native women that are living in urban centers is through the roof. And what's happening is that there's no data. So there's no national database of how many Native women are going missing and murdered. Almost all of the cases, people's racial category are miscategorized. So Native women who are found aren't even being categorized as Native, mm. are not even being categorized as their tribe. And so that information is not getting back to their communities. And so there's just this complete lack of law enforcement response to this crisis, which is not surprising because I think violence against us has always been part of how colonization has functioned. It also intersects with some of the environmental concerns around some of the pipelines and other extractive industries. I know you were at Standing Rock working with uh, sexual assault survivors, and people might think that, you know, some murder case, which deals with who can prosecute him, violence against women, yeah, and then some environmental justice issue might be totally unrelated. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I, I was at Sandy Rock for a very brief period of time compared to the folks who were there for months and really organized the space. Um, oh. <laughs> um, but I uh, was able to collaborate with a woman named Gracie Horn, and we created um, healing space for Native women and for survivors at the camp and also did an honor walk for survivors at the camp. But yeah, I mean, there are leaders like Faith Spotted Eagle and um, Greg Graycloud, people that like when Keystone Pipeline was being proposed, a lot of the people who are standing up in the communities and saying this can't happen here, were worried about violence against Native women. You know, there are statistics like with the oil boom that's happened in North Dakota, the number of registered sex offenders that live in the state has skyrocketed. And it's a problem because, you know, I mean, it's our whole system where people can't live within urban settings, basically. But, I mean, it has really increased the violence on those reservations. And so that resource extraction comes with that huge human cost. And then we bump back into the question of accountability for yeah. non-Indians on Indian land. 
Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's what really needs to be fixed. You know, um, when you sit down and you talk to women whose abusers would literally call tribal police and say, hey, I'm beating my wife right now because they know that the police can't do anything about it. Like you absolutely want that law to change. But what we need is the full restoration of tribal jurisdiction. Tribes should absolutely have the authority to say what happens on our land. And I think there's this deep-seated bias in our courts and in our Congress that our tribes are inferior, that we're backwards. It doesn't have to look like a white system for it to be valid, you know? We've talked a lot about the land and who has jurisdiction over the land, but one of the things you brought up at the very beginning was the importance of language and of lifeways and of identity. So one of the other projects that you, I know I've been working a lot on is around the Cherokee language and the efforts to train folks to learn it, to teach it. Can you talk a little bit about that work and why it feels so important to you? Yeah, I'm really at the baby stage of learning how to speak Cherokee. So I had the honor and the privilege of being in a program with my tribe that is there to teach adults second language learners. And so um, I learned from some amazingly patient <laughs> and generous speakers how to, you know, have very, like, I can talk like a five-year-old conversations. <laughs> but I mean, I think that, you know, not just Cherokee, but almost Every language in the United States right now, almost every indigenous language is threatened or endangered. You know, the United States globally has a really high concentration of endangered languages when you look at the map. And most tribes, you know, we're a generation away from losing our language. And that's true for Cherokee Nation, too. I think there are less than 10 people under the age of 40 who speak our language. Wow. And so if we don't take serious measures in the next generation, we're not going to have a language to pass down. And it's interesting, like it can sound kind of harsh, but like when you talk to speakers about it, they'll just say, we won't be Cherokee. Like our identity is in our language. And if we lose that, we'll lose what it means to be Cherokee. Well, and along with sovereignty means that you are, as you say, a, a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. That mm -hmm. is your citizenship. But just like all of us have a citizenship as exactly. well as a language, as well as a culture, all these are pieces of an identity. And I think I want to talk about your analysis and your commentary on what it means to be Cherokee and the identity of being Cherokee. You've talked a lot about how harmful it is when people who don't have a claim to the identity, yeah. claim the identity. I mean, we all know prominent people, Elizabeth Warren, who <laughs> have gotten a lot of flack yeah. for claiming the identity. And I don't necessarily, we don't have to talk about her in particular because these kinds of myths actually exist in my family as well. So growing up on both sides, both my mother's and my father's side, there was like some family lore. Yeah. A lot of people have it. Very common. About, you know, there's a Cherokee ancestor somewhere. I understand how harmful these myths are and how erasing they can be and all the different ways in which they are deeply problematic. And growing up African-American in a white environment, this at some point was really an important part of my identity, it felt like. It was like something that I held on to until I was about maybe 11 or 12 and I met like some real live Native American people. <laughs> We exist. <laughs> and I was like, oh, yeah. I don't know anything about that. Yeah. That is not my identity. 
And I have no claim over that identity. Yeah. And so I'm interested in how we not only acknowledge how problematic those stories can be, but like how do we, in a more productive way, yeah. think about how we deal with those things. For me, what struck me was, you know, if there's this myth, this story, whatever it is, mm -hmm. to do some investigation. Yeah, exactly. And so I did some investigation. And on my mom's side, it looks like it's actually a color-related myth. I'll come back to that. On my dad's side, I was able to identify, like, the spot in the family tree. We think it's, like, a real person. So, like, that doesn't mean I get to check boxes or I still don't speak the language. It's still not my identity. But it's different to say my great-great-aunt was something rather than just, like, I'm Indian because somebody told me once I was Indian. Yeah, and every tribe is different. But within Cherokees, we're a really well-documented group of people. So saying that you have a Cherokee relative is like saying that you're related to the Queen of England. Like, you should have proof. Yeah. Um, like, seriously, between 1814 and 1914, there were like over 40 different roles taken of Cherokee citizens. And so there were roles taken prior to our removal. There was a role of everybody who traveled on the Trail of Tears. When we were our own tribe in Oklahoma before allotment, we took our own census and had our own list of citizens like any other government does. And so there are, we are recorded the hell out of. And, you know, it's like, and that's actually kind of cool because it's really like you can really trace your genealogy as a Cherokee person. But that means that if you have a Cherokee ancestor and there's no documentation of that person, it is kind of preposterous to say that they exist, you know, treat it with the same amount of weight. Like literally if somebody was like, oh, you know, like I am the descendant of the Duchess of Wooster. I don't know if that's a place, but like. Something like that, you know, you, you would can figure think, it out. Yeah, you can figure it out. And Cherokees are the exact same way. And I think. What's happening right now is, you know, maybe some people just carry these family stories and it's really innocent, but there are lots of people who are using those family stories to try and access resources that have been set aside for Native Americans and for people of color. And so in the past year, the LA Times has actually done this really big investigative dig into people who are members of fake tribes, using their membership as part of these fake tribes to get um, no bid federal contracts for minority owned businesses. And so far they've uncovered $800 million of federal contracts that these white people by being members of fake Cherokee tribes have gotten. So there's like a fake Cherokee tribe in Missouri where a bunch of the members did this. They're not even state recognized, which, you know, we can get state, it, that's complicated, but they're not even state recognized by the state of Missouri. They just made their own tribal IDs, literally just, and then use that to get minority business owned status. And when you ask the members of those fake tribes, it's like they've either taken DNA tests or they have some kind of unfounded family story. And so, I mean, it's on the U.S. Census, twice as many people identified as Cherokee than are enrolled in our three federally recognized Cherokee tribes. So there are literally half a million people in the United States who claim to be Cherokee. And that's just on the census. So think about all the people who have that family story who don't write that on the census. So that's why I get mad about it. <laughs> I appreciate that. No, I think it's a very important message and one that for some people is very hard to hear. If you're going to claim it, you need the receipts. Especially with Cherokees, yes, because we have lots of receipts. I mean, getting back to what you said earlier, like if somebody does have that family story, go and check it out. Like at the Cherokee Heritage Center, there's a genealogy department where for a small fee, they'll do your family tree and they'll figure it out. And if you think you have a great, great Cherokee something, 
They'll you'll look at the out. document and they'll tell you if it's true or not. Yeah, it's that simple. It is. It's straightforward. And I do want to add one wrinkle, though. So I, I mentioned that on my father's side, we were able to trace it to an individual. I haven't gone to figure out all of the, you know, verify that person's claim, but it's an individual. On my mom's side, it's an interesting story. And I think it's a common one among African-Americans because growing up, I remember distinctly saying, I have a Cherokee ancestor and someone laughing and being like, every black person says that. And I think there's a reason why. And I think it has to do with explaining features. So straight hair and light skin in a family, it's much easier to say, oh, there's some Choctaw somewhere than to actually tell the story of how those features changed. Now, that doesn't mean someone should claim identity without receipts, but it's just to say the way that these stories are created and the motivations yeah. behind them can have a variety uh, of roots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think it's important, like, we have Cherokee citizens who are Black and their families have been part of our tribe and have receipts and have that documentation. And so I think that, um, like, I get mad when people who, because, like, as somebody who passes as white and who is Cherokee, I always get kind of that, like, oh, you're a Cherokee, you know, because people like yeah. lump me in with all these folks who have those false stories. Mm. And again, like not to discount the privilege of that I move through the world with every day, but it that's kind of like what gets under my skin about mm. Warren is because I get put in the same category as her where our family histories are not the same. Um, and so I think that that does damage to people who have that real connection to the tribe because I think there is a lot of anti-black racism in Indian country and the way that I get questioned by other Indians people who present as black in Indian country and who are indigenous get questioned even more mm-hmm. and deal with that even more and it's something that we really have to work on and which is why I think when outsiders claim it who aren't part of our tribe it just it makes that internal process that much harder. Like, I just remember there was this day at work right after Warren took the DNA test where we just had this, like, explosive fight over basically, like, Cherokee identity. So, yeah, it's just, yeah, it's really complicated. Well, I promised you we were going to go deep. (laughs) So we went deep. And I want to finish by evaluating the same question in terms of Cherokee identity and those who are within that identity and those who are not but frame it in a positive way in terms of coalition building and allyship. What is it that, you know, leaving aside the question of family history, I think we've talked about how we can productively and responsibly deal with those kind of family stories. But more broadly, you have a massive undertaking in this land to educate people about this case, to educate people about the complicated legal structures governing Native Americans and their land, uh, but also to tell the story of that land. What is it that you really hope that allies and coalition members do and think and say uh, to help advance the cause of Native American justice? Yeah, I mean, I think that our main barrier to justice and policy change in the United States is our almost complete erasure from everywhere, from pop culture, from mainstream media, from public education. And so, you know, of all of the people, characters, stories that you see on TV and on the radio, less than 1%, I think it's like less than 0.01% of all media depicts Native people. You know, we are just so 
invisible. And then it is when we go to Congress, when we're in front of the courts, you know, the only thing that those lawmakers have to draw on are these stereotypes. And so I think what people can do is just to diversify, like, where you're getting your news, where you're getting media, you know, follow Native people on Twitter. I always point people to um, Indian Country Today, which is one of the main Native news outlets. There's also a really great website, Indians.com, and it's Indians with a Z.com. And just follow like Dallas Goldtooth and Adrian Keene and Kim Dahlberg. I mean, there are and Rebecca Nagel or me too. <laughs> but yeah, just like diversify who, you, where you're getting your news from, and make sure that Native voices are part of that. Because so often, what happens, you know, like with the Supreme Court case, like these huge cases that are really impactful are going up to the Supreme Court and nobody outside of Indian country is even talking about it. And so um, we just really need more people paying attention. Well, we're certainly paying attention and we really appreciate you saying. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for listening. If you'd like to hear more conversations like this one, please be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and check out our archive. In particular, you may be interested in our first live taping at last year's Night of Philosophy and Ideas, where we talked about identity and identity politics with Professor Kwame Anthony Apia. If you'd like to support At Liberty, you can donate at www.aclu.org liberty. Till next week, peace. <laughs>